Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Okay, I hope you enjoyed the new spiced up intro. Let me know what you think. A quick note of self-promotion before jumping into today's show. I've published a book called Communion. It is a compendium of all my Camusings essays from 2020, many of which I've read here on the show. In the book, I've also attached various writing exercises to the essays, exhortations for self-examination and expression, if you will. So if you are inclined to purchase one, it is available at onecommune.com communion. Okay, so today on the show, I discuss matters of the heart, with Rich Roll and Julie Piat, also known as Srimati. I originally recorded this interview as part of an article that appeared in the Heart Chakra edition of Human Shift magazine, which is just a stunning publication in every sense. A love in the yoga tradition is rooted in the fourth or heart chakra, envisioned as a spinning disc of energy in the lower center of the chest. This is the spiritual and physiological locus of human compassion, empathy, and forgiveness. A love, of course, has many iterations, but humans seem to be most captivated by romantic love. And if only due to the longevity of my relationship with my wife, Skylar, I have stumbled into being a bit of an expert on the subject. Skylar and I have been tangling with each other since 1988, and over these past 33 years have developed myriad strategies to maintain a relative harmony. Now, of course, All relationships have their own distinct character, and I was humbled to be asked to interview this effervescent couple that I've deeply admired from afar, but not too far. They actually just live down the street. Rich and Julie are widely known and celebrated for their individual accomplishments. Rich is a podcast host, triathlete, speaker, and writer. Julie is a musician, artist, chef, entrepreneur, and author. But in this conversation, we excavate what they have accomplished together across more than two decades in relationship. We discuss how they have navigated the inevitable triumphs and failures of life and how they've enabled each other's successes. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Rich Roll and Julie Piat.
So it's my understanding that uh, this particular edition of the magazine is loosely focused on the fourth chakra. And I was telling Rich, despite my yogurt credentials, I'm, I'm hardly a chakra expert, but um, I, I believe that is your heart chakra located somewhere in your lower chest. And it really anchors our individual center for love and compassion and forgiveness um, and empathy. So I figured since both you guys together and separate, but as a couple, and I've been with my wife, Skylar, who's a yoga teacher for 33 years. And just by the token of pure longevity, we've been thrust into the role of expert. On love, at, at least romantic love, which I suppose is sort of like a pie slice of greater love. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of territory to, to excavate here with wellness and veganism and yoga and many different things that I'm sure we could talk about, but I suppose love could be a general parenthesis for, um, for our conversation. And um, I, I guess there's so much to talk about in terms of how you guys have been able to sort of navigate adversity and challenges and triumphs over decades. And I've had to do that as well, but maybe just start by kind of scaffolding the conversation in, in with the energy around your meeting and, and how you guys first connected and what series of interests and what pulled you together kind of in, in the first yeah. place. Julie and I first met in a yoga class back in 1999. Uh, I wasn't uh, that long out of a, an extended stint in a in an alcohol drug and alcohol treatment center. <laughs> so I had been living in in rural Oregon for a hundred days, getting sober and um, rooting myself in spiritual principles, really for the first time, uh, and accumulating a certain skill set in order to maintain sobriety. Once I made my way back out into the world. And when I returned to Los Angeles, I went back to my you know, law firm job in, in Century City and started asking myself questions that I'd never had before, like, you know, like, who do I want to be? And, you know, I had, there was a lot of confusion in my mind because I'd never really wrestled with anything spiritual before. But one thing I knew for certain was that I needed a new community of people and new friends. Like I just was used to going to bars and getting loaded and you know, I just couldn't do that anymore. So. I was going to one or two AA meetings a day and meeting a lot of people there, but I needed, so, you know, I, I had a history as an athlete. I was a swimmer at Stanford and I wanted to, you know, start reconnecting with my physical self and found myself really gravitating towards yoga. And this one particular class in Brentwood, Steve Ross's class at the time. Um, and, uh, and would, I started going almost every day. In fact, I would at times, leave my law firm office and leave my jacket draped on my chair. So people thought I was just down the hall and I would scoot over to Brentwood and do, and do Steve's class and come back to work. And none, none was the wiser, but um, it was, you know, it was a, for a community of people who all seemed to be interested in, in improving themselves in various ways. And Julie was somebody who was attending that class 
regularly. And she was part of a group of friends that, that I had made there. And we started to socialize after class and on the weekends and at dinner parties at people's houses. So she was somebody who I kind of knew about and knew of and was friends with people that I was friends with. Um, but, um, you know, didn't we, it's not like we immediately dated, but there was something about her when I saw her, like something clicked inside of me. And I just knew I even said to my friend who I was going to class with at the time, I was like, that's my, I'm going to marry that girl. Like, I just knew it <laughs> inside of me that was, that was just, you know, pulled towards her, even though I didn't even really know her at all. And the fact that that all actually happened is like, a, you know, a, myst <laughs> a mystical, magical journey that, that, that we've been on. Um, but there was definitely like a weird past life knowing, I don't know if Julie shared that, but it was um, profound in me. Hmm, well, perhaps we'll find out. Did you have the same yeah. mystical epiphany well, that, that Rich had? <laughs> Rich, and this probably was the only time in the 20, 25 years we've known each other that he was more tapped in than I was. <laughs> yeah. now, now, I was um, I was completing a 10-year marriage, um, and I had two little boys who were like three and four, maybe two and three when I first met Rich. And sometimes I'd bring the boys to... to class with me and their jammies they'd be hanging on me and all this so I remember that he there was a joke I found out later that he you know I I had um blue and orange extensions in my hair and she was like a wild animal and he was like uh he told his friends like you know that girl's so hot uh, I would drink her bath water so they called me bath water like nice. behind my back for a, for a year, maybe I was in the same room and you know how you are in yoga. Like you don't really want to date people in yoga because it's your sacred room. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's just, uh, it almost never works out. Like it's kind of rare. I think that you meet somebody in yoga and it sticks. So, um, and I would say, sorry to interrupt, but I would say, yeah, like I was reluctant as well because I really was enjoying the class and I didn't want to get involved in some kind of dalliance that would go sideways. And then I would feel weird about going there. Um, and at the same time, you know, coming out of treatment, you know, I had had a, a marriage that went south, like on the honeymoon and, and, it, you know, it's like, I was coming out of a disastrous relationship situation and also very ill-equipped to be in a healthy relationship. I'd never had been before. I didn't know how to do that. And I had pledged that, um, my first year of sobriety, I was going to be, um, I was not going to date, like I was going to be essentially celibate. And I was adhering to that. And it was a very empowering experience for me and taught me a lot about myself and how I relate to the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. Along that way, I had kind of, you know, formulated in my mind that whoever I was going to date next was going to be, you know, pr probably several years younger than me. And, you know, somebody who hadn't had a lot of complicated you know, <laughs> sort of experiences that you know, would be kind of easy. And, you know, the idea that I would, that I would get involved with somebody who was coming out of a divorce with two kids who was older than me was just anathema. Like that with was orange and blue hair, I might yeah, add. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the danger sign, you know, was looming large. And yet, you know, it's probably an alcoholic aspect of me to that is, of course, like that's what I'm attracted to. That, yeah, <laughs> that's funny because, I, and I, I don't know enough about your relationship to, to make um, this point, but certainly I, I can see some parallels with my relationship with Skylar. I, I'm certainly the one that's more kind of 
empirically minded, like I, I need evidence based, you know, uh, uh, you know, data in order to validate certain things. But like Rich, you know, I had a complete sort of mystical epiphany when I first met Skylar um, in it, we were like this goes back to 1988. We were in like an art humanities class and she would walk into class in this kind of like talky leotard, you know, right from her, you know, hip hop dance class at steps, you know, and, and I would be like cowering in the back because I was such, I was basically like a mute stoner at that juncture. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and she, because there would only be one, you know, little chair left in class that would sort of, you know, file her back towards me. And she would, she always had a grapefruit in her purse and she would uh, take the grapefruit out of her purse and open it up. And she would kind of spew forth this kind of aerosol of grapefruit <laughs> dust that would envelop me in this, like I'd be enshrouded in this kind of mystical love fairy dust. <laughs> and then I was, she would carry me, carry me away kind of like the abduction of St. Teresa or something. But um, so so you you found your yourself you guys each other in um in yoga class and uh but clearly i mean you guys were carrying a lot with you into your relationship um and so i'm wondering like how did you how did you navigate that you know like kids from a prior relationship i mean was that sort of an, did you on-ramp very easily into uh, so i mean you know like rich it's like i was coming out of a 10-year marriage i've been married three times now so it was my second marriage and i was really looking forward to dating a lot of people and being free because i'd been 10 years you know very committed in a very what i consider a very successful marriage um but it just came to completion and I really wasn't in, you know, I did not see Rich and recognize him as someone that I was going to do what I did with, you know, what we've done together. Um, and so we both, for different reasons, we were not, we were not the right model for both of us. Like he wanted somebody younger. I didn't want, you know, somebody that would be a life partner. And when I finally did speak to him, he came to a yoga retreat and a friend of mine had told me that he had a crush on me and I was not really that responsive to it. And right. when he came, when he came to the retreat, um, I just talked, you know, I sat down and talked to him and it was during that conversation that I remembered him from a past life, meaning I knew that I knew him and I knew that he wasn't a dating guy. He was a marrying guy. So I was kind of annoyed. I was kind of like, I don't want this marrying guy right now, but he's, he's a marrying guy. Like that, like that, like I could feel it. So I remember rich, like we kissed in the Kiva, like, you know, that the dark, the cave that's like way down. Right. So we kissed in the Kiva, like, you know, pretty, um, you know, innocent, you know, not anything too crazy. And then I remember the next day after the retreat, he called me and he said, so was that a real kiss or was that a yoga kiss? <laughs> so, you might have to define that. <laughs> am I, like, am I supposed to call you now or is that just over? You know, so yeah. anyway, I was very protective over my boys. Um, I'm a very, a very fierce mother. And it's, a, you know, something that I think is a large part of my energetic is being a mother. And 
I definitely wasn't interested in parading a bunch of guys in front of my kids. So for the first nine months, I didn't introduce Rich to the kids. And I had the kids like a week on, a week off. So we dated on the week off. And Mm -hmm. on the week on, I just didn't see him. I was with my kids. So I think just organically, that provided a very balanced field for us to get to know each other. Because I think if I had had kids all the time and then had showed up and then Rich was, you know, with the kids, that might have been very, you know, too much, you know, Mm -hmm. wouldn't have given time. So um, I think that it was just all those elements, you know, in the recipe that all add up and they all make it work. And it was timing and it was, um, I think, a a sole agreement um, of the work we were going to do together, Mm -hmm. honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in getting into that work. Um, certainly, you know, you guys have done a tremendous amount together and then also have had sort of parallel success and accomplishments. Um, you know, I, I can kind of just speak to my own relationship and I was young and sort of navigating the the darkness of adolescence and you know my parents had had a really nasty ugly divorce and you know when I was got together with Skylar like I was in a very needy place like I was very reliant on the approval of others to cement my own identity Um, I needed her and others to make me feel enough and worthy. And for many, many years, I sort of thrust the requirements of my ego onto her, um, which was in some ways, I think, a a very risky proposition, because I think when you rely on other people for your own self-worth, often those folks can can disappoint. Um, And through kind of her buttressing over time and through a lot of work and practice and self-reflection and meditation, I I sort of, I got to a cautious place of self-acceptance and really from the absence of need, a new kind of love emerged more as a state of being and and less as, as an emotion sort of transitorily coming moment to moment into my consciousness. And I wonder, you know, it sounds like, you know, Rich, particularly like when you were um, entering this relationship and truly maybe for you too, you guys were both coming at it from a lot of adversity in your lives. And did you feel needy at that time, at that point? And were you looking to each other to almost fulfill certain chasms or deficiencies or needs in your life? And, and if so, have you evolved from that place? Because Julie, like I've heard you talk a lot about self-love and, and um, you know, I'll just reduce it clumsily to a cliche, which is like, you can't really love until you love yourself. So I wonder maybe if you could kind of unpack a little of that, you know, love's relationship to need the importance of self-love and how that has played a role in the evolution of of your relationship. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, uh, 
I was uh, coming into a place in my life when I met Rich where I was ready to realize myself. I had been in relationships with men that had been like, the first one was an abuser. And so he was like, I'm going to beat you and you're going to do what I tell you to do. And you're going to think what I tell you to think. And you're, and I am the Lord of your, who you are. Then I had the boy's dad, which was a rescue. He, his, his um, archetype is a, is a rescuer. And he was an amazing rescuer and I needed to be rescued badly. So <laughs> It was really quite amazing. And that's why I, I cherish that relationship. And I really, um, I have a great devotion and a great respect to him, even though it came to completion. Um, because during that time, my creative tra trajectory was, you know, like a rocket ship because I had somebody loving me for who I was. Mm. Um, the problem is, is that then when I rose up and was okay, his, his need to rescue no longer worked. So that, that's just a, that's a oversimplification of, of why our relationship came to completion. So when I met Rich, I was really um, like, I was building our house and it had to be my, I was building it. Like I didn't need someone else to be on it with me and decide, I mean, it was my, it's mine. So for the first time in my life, it was very important that I was expressing myself. And the thing that I really loved about Rich and it was really endearing to me was the fact that when I had a problem, he would, he would not try to fix it. He would admit that he had no ability to fix it and that he could not even take my pain from me, but that he would sit beside me. Mm. And that to me as a woman was a huge relief. I was like, oh, fucking thank God. He's not inserting himself as fixer of whatever I'm doing. So that was really where I came in. And, you know, Rich was going through, you know, obviously a lot with being newly sober, but, you know, I view life in its spiritual lens, um, sort of first. And so, you know, I never considered that he was an addict alcoholic, didn't even think about it, actually, you know, didn't even like, it was just like, I just received him at face value of, of how he was. And, um, and for me, my journey with him has been one of devotion, which is my life is one of devotion. Mm. So I, I worshiped our relationship, the energy in our relationship, whatever, whatever highest aspect of rich that I know is who he really is. Um, you know, I did ritual to that on a daily basis over years and years and years and years, even times when he didn't know that I was doing that. And so uh, I came to the relationship as a devotional ritual, as a, as a grace of God, basically. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, I mean, I, I, and from my perspective, I mean, I, you know, I was, you know, coming out of a lot of trauma, you know, I was somebody who, who, you know, as a young person had a tremendous amount of potential and a lot of people invested in my success and, you know, expectations that I probably would never be able to actually meet, you know, I was like, I got into all these Ivy League schools, and I was a world ranked swimmer. And, it's, you know, it's like, 
the promise built into what I, you know, could and perhaps would become. Um, maybe that was overwhelming and, you know, you know, sort of led me towards my alcoholic path, but, you know, I cratered the whole thing. Like I basically just imploded my whole life until I was, you know, an utterly broken human being, like isolated in a shitty apartment, you know, drinking around the clock. And so, you know, I needed to be put back together again. Um, and I had started that process when I met Julie, but was still relatively new in that. But, but I had enough in my toolkit to understand that, you know, I, I wasn't going to vest Julie with that responsibility, that that was my own responsibility. And I think, um, so to kind of differentiate Jeff from, from your relationship, I wasn't looking at Julie to provide me with that validation. Like I knew well enough that, um, that was, you know, not a path to a successful relationship, but I did seek it out in other ways. And I, and it's still a struggle. You know, I seek, I, you know, I'm a people pleaser and I seek validation externally. And, you know, a lot of the things that I've done and built, you know, probably <laughs> yeah, yeah. chalked up to, you know, that quest of filling, you know, that spiritual hole with, um, you know, the, with the, you know, the, the adulation of the audience that I've built. Um, and I've matured in that regard, but um, but I needed to, I needed to find my own path. And I, and I was trying to break out of this paradigm of, you know, you need to be a lawyer and, you know, you're not successful unless you become partner and really reimagine what my life could be, which, which, which required some creative heavy lifting and some support. And Julie was the one who believed in that journey for me. Whereas everybody else was like, you're crazy. What are you doing? Julie's like, no, I see this person inside of you that you can't see right now there's a glimmer of hope you're trying to you know fan this tiny little flame inside of you but it's burning bright for me and i'm going to stand next to you and hold your hand while you figure this out she wasn't trying to solve it for me but she had a belief in 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 that possibility and i, I and i know for a fact that you know without that i would have never none of the things that you know i've done individually collectively would have ever come to pass because she was able to have faith when I couldn't and when I faltered. And I think that that's, if I have a superpower, my superpower is something that I call extreme faith. So if you look at what, what is Christ consciousness, right? And, and what does that stand for? Not, not Jesus Christ, the man, but the Christic consciousness that is a part of what it means to be a human being, our, our birthright as divine human beings it's to hold the vision of the highest until the reality vibrates up to meet it. And mm. so when we're struggling, what we really need for people to say, I see who you are and I believe in you. I believe in you. And I know you're faltering, but I'm going to hold this vision of you until you vibrate up and you meet it. But what we do as human beings is we give somebody, you should have done this, you should have done that, you're wrong in this way, you're wrong in that way. And that is not Christ consciousness. That is ripping somebody down. So to be able to hold that vision is something that I, I have experienced in my life. And a friend of ours, Stu Bone, uh, when I, I held that vision for our house when we went through a nine-year financial collapse during this journey that Rich and I were going through, but he told me that I demonstrated him the reality of quantum physics because I held 
this this reality and he's a he's in commercial real estate and he knows way better than me how these things go and i obviously was insane and i obviously had no basis to hold this vision but i held it and it was hard i i held it again and again and again and again and again it took arrows being shot at me and all kinds of things but in the end i persevered because because i meant it because i meant it and i was willing to stand there and be an idiot or be a you know lunatic or whatever was required in order to um serve that that love of mine and what i would also tell you is i feel that it is riches um knowledge of aa and ability to use those tools and my spiritual awareness that allowed us to overcome all the obstacles because we had tools to have this we had so many issues i mean we had we had every kind of issue anyone you know like just name it like we we had it worse but why why is it that we were brought together over you know a, a veritable seven year financial collapse there was a year down and a year back up but it was seven years and we had babe i had two babies during that time i mean that would have exploded most people it, it they they wouldn't have made it but for us because it was a spiritual mission it brought us together it unified us so i i consider myself very lucky that i that i'm in a relationship with somebody that has a a program like aa that has the ability to stop and look at themselves like we're able to really we really can work through conflict very well mm-hmm. very very well that's that's really that's really amazing yeah and the ability to work through conflict you you can attribute a lot of that to to 12 step you think yeah very much so i mean you yeah. know to kind of you know paint the picture a little bit i mean we during this period of collapse like a lot of this took place after my book finding ultra came out and from you know outside appearances it's like oh you got this book and you guys live in this amazing house and like all these people enjoy what you're putting out in the world like everything's great and like you know i was emasculated because i was struggling to put food on the table and we were having cars repossessed and we couldn't at one point we couldn't pay for our garbage to get picked up and they took our bins away and it was like it was un- and we you know we our our washer and dryer broke so we'd put the laundry in the back of the minivan with 300,000 miles on it and go to the laundromat and like you know it was it was like it was really difficult in terms of uh you know testing our faith like me thinking like I could be a partner in a law firm like what is you know everybody's like you're crazy like you're you're responsible like you're supposed to be providing and you're not able to do that and julie was able to like say it's going to be okay like and she had this jedi neutrality about the whole thing we gamified it she's like it's a game like it only is traumatic if you allow it to be so when i remember when i had like a, a land rover discovery and i missed a bunch of payments and the repo guy showed up to take it away and julie greeted him in the driveway and was and was like do you want some tea why don't you come in like are you cool you like she was so nice to him that he was baffled by the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 
my perspective, and it, this this was the, the training was it's it's uh, it's warrior training. What I what I realized is we were going through this spiritual dismantling, and these physical appearances were crumbling in front of us to the point where. It would be like, oh, my radio just exploded in my car or a window in our house shattered with nothing touching it. Um, you know, Rich would call me. He was like, the car's on fire. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like this. And so what I realized is that I was like, oh, these things are just coming at us because they're trainings. And so if I can get my reaction time down to nothing, like no emotional reaction to whatever is coming then they will, it'll stop coming. It'll be like, I, I got it. I learned the lesson. So I was coaching Rich to stay in his neutral emotional state because when he got emotional, he made it worse. And I was like, I'm already dealing with the fact that the car's on fire and you're getting arrested. But if you go crazy, then I got to deal with that too. And so, you know, the kids were like, you know, mom, what happens at the car? gets repossessed i was like nothing nothing happens it was like there's a billion cars in the world (laughs) and and so they i had to show that for them that it was more of a game to me it became a spiritual challenge and and i just would i reduce that emotional reaction to nothing if you see a jedi warrior in like star wars they're not freaking out or falling down on the floor kicking their legs they're just like in neutrality. It's like, okay, we're being shot at. All right, let's get that. Okay, let's get that. You know, it's, and so that was a really amazing training. And, um, and yeah, I just, uh, I also am, I'm an eternal optimist. Like I'm very flexible and I always can find a solution in most cases. Um, and so I didn't know it was going to be nine years or it would have been a lot harder, but (laughs) in those moments I could find this, you know, this energy of upliftment and creativity and an ability to believe Mm -hmm. and just say, you know, right. I think, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, it's funny. I've just started wading into stoicism a bit and, um, and reading about it for, for the first time. And Julie, some of what you're saying is resonating with me around some of the central tenets of, of Stoicism, where so often we're not actually reacting or responding to the event itself, we're reacting to our judgment of the event. And so what you were saying is like, so what if the car gets repossessed? There's millions of cars, you know, yeah. so often we're reacting to our our mental gymnastics around the car of getting repossessed. And, and it, it sounds like whether or not you, you've read. I've not read. Innately embody it. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, uh, you know, people, it's quite, it's quite interesting when you go through financial collapse, because first of all, you scare the shit out of everyone else around you. Because the truth of the matter is, is, we're all worshiping the wrong God and the God is money. Like that's who we think is our maker in as a society. And so when you start to do that a different way, like I can tell you, we were always provided for, we never went hungry, but we didn't have health insurance. We got our cars repossessed. I didn't pay mortgage for five years, property taxes or insurance. I didn't have a bank account for four years. (laughs) When I worked with somebody, I would have to say, Jeff, it's been great. And can you please pay me in cash? Thank you. Thanks so much. 
it just became a conversation. I just would say the thing. I would say the sentence and get the cash, you know, like how does, how do you, and how do we function when all that stuff is going down? And the thing is, is that, you know, I would tell people I'm not a loser. I'm in my sacred moment. Like I'm going through a spiritual rebirth. Like I, it's not, I'm not a loser. Like, Oh, you can't pay your bills. And it's also interesting how many people have a big ego about that. You know, they're like, well, I pay my bills. I'm like, Whoa, you're amazing. You know, wow. <laughs> you know, and also just the inherent shame that's in that the money system has put in us, like it's okay for Trump or any big corporations to file bankruptcy left and right as just a business strategy. But you take the well-meaning citizen person who's really worked hard and who has bought into this whole thing, you know, they suffer greatly in shame when this happens. Mm -hmm. And some of them even kill themselves over it. And so during this time, I had to go see a bankruptcy attorney at one time. And you'll appreciate this. I had this huge mala, spiritual mala with a big medallion that I had been chanting on. Like every master (laughs) I had sat in front had had seen this mala. And um, so I went to this Orange County law office and I'm sitting at the conference table and I said, uh, just give me uh, option A, you know, scenario A, B, C. I said, I have no emotional attachment or shame around this bankruptcy at all. Um, just tell me, I want three descriptions of what might happen. And he was just shocked. He was like, nobody is having this experience. And I'm like, that's because nobody understands that they're not, that they're so much more than their credit score. And right at that moment, the mala broke and all the beads rolled over the conference table. (laughs) And I was like, it was a sign, like a spiritual sign to me, you know? So um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was now that I'm through it, I'm so glad because I have no fear of money. It resides in my being. It it, it 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 does not live in me. Nothing, none of it. Mm-hmm. And I love money, and I'm going to make a lot of money, and I'm having the most expansive, you know, meetings of my life around Srinu, and it's going to be huge. And but it's like I'm so grateful for that experience because I have absolutely no stress. There's not one drop of constriction in my body about money or if I'm going to get it or who's going to get it or what it means. It just has nothing on me. Yeah, well, certainly, if you can, if you can remove money as a point of discussion or disagreement out of a relationship, I think you, you one has advanced a long way. And you know, mm-hmm. it was. I mean, it was lucky for me in my position because when Skylar and I got together, we were teenagers and we both had, we would go to the ATM and take like 20 bucks out, you know, it was like that, um, you know, and, and then, you know, we, we'd see the receipt and it would be like $3 and 54 cents. I actually found my old checkbook. I would write checks for like a dollar 75, you know, like funny. Um, but it, you know, it sounds, um, like commitment is often framed sort of within the brackets of, of sacrifice. You know, it's like oftentimes, you know, people talk about commitment and be like, oh, I've got to give this up and I've got to give that up. And it seems like oftentimes in relationship, commitment is sort of related to limitation. 
And when I hear you guys talk, I, I sort of feel the complete opposite. And in some ways that your guys sort of the bedrock of your commitment has actually been liberating, has freed you to take risks, to not be that partner in the law firm, but to actually pursue you know, what you're doing, which is having great impact, knowing that if you fail, there is still the sort of soft pillow of this unassailable, unconditional love to fall back on. And in a way, it sort of completely redefines commitment as freedom, you know, and I, I just don't think people think of it that way. And I, I wonder if like, you know, just inside your own relationship, how, how you guys have approached or seen this notion of commitment. Is there sacrifice to it or is there all kind of upside? <laughs> Well, I think, I think uh, you know, the word sacrifice gets used pejoratively. I mean, there's a, there's a sacrifice in the sense that we're committed to each other. But in that commitment, as you, you know, astutely pointed out, we both have tremendous freedom. And I think we've, we've always approached our relationship from a, pers- from a perspective of empowering each other. Like the commitment is that we have each other's backs 100% and we've built a foundation uh, of trust. And so within that, we allow ourselves great freedom to express ourselves in a myriad of ways. Like we're not dependent upon each other in order to do what we do. And when we, when we do come together, there's something very special about what we create in unison with each other. But we're also both very independent people and very different people who have different interests. Like Julie doesn't want to wake up in the morning and go trail running, you know, like she's doing her stuff and I go do my stuff. And, um, and, you know, I do the podcast now and she's got Shrimu and we're, you know, hundred percent behind each other and we want to see each other succeed. And the commitment is to the mutuality of that success. But within that, we give each other wide berth to be who we are. We're not trying to constrict each other, but, but, you know, basically empower the development of that in each of us. I mean, we're, you know, our vows, I was remembering our, our vows and our wedding and our vows were that you may not remember this, but I probably don't. Which is like, oh shit. (laughs) You'd be like, vows. We, we, we committed to support each other, to realize our wildest dreams. Hmm. That was really, that was the whole thing. So it's not, it doesn't have any. um, And the other thing is, is that we don't complete each other. Like, like that has nothing to do with anything. And the other morning actually last week was hilarious because I've been uh, really uh, in a, in a, in a heightened state of ritual and meditation and ceremony um, that has been just delicious and an amazing thing. And so you know, I'm, I uh, often have, you know, some substances rubbed on my face in different places. And so I came down into the kitchen, you know, after being up for hours chanting and whatever, and, and I have my tea kettle and I'm going to get, you know, another serving of, of water and Rich is in the kitchen getting water in his water bottle. And he's in his cycling gear with his little 
you know, clip cloppy bicycle shoes and the helmet and his like glasses. And we kind of meet at the water dispenser and he just looks at me and he's like, we're in completely different costumes. (laughs) 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 And, And, you know, it was just this very like, physical demonstration of the fact that we're literally from two different universes and you know and that was just a really humorous very true moment yeah that's probably that should be the cover of of your next book you do together you don't complete me with (laughs) both dressed that way i mean actually i love the way you use the word complete in a number of different contexts I, I really always loved it in terms of the relationship con- uh, context that you've uh, used, I think, around Lou um, particularly. But, um, but this notion of not having to complete someone else or feeling complete just unto yourself. Um, and and I, I actually wrote something interesting. I was reminiscing about that movie, Jerry Maguire. Um, yeah. and, and I know that we're more or less in the same generation, so we can refer to movies yeah, right. that are old. <laughs> but there's this kind of pl- moment in the film where Tom Cruise is tearfully bearing his soul to Renee Zellweger, and he's like, you complete me, <laughs> you know? And um, But, you know, even in this sort of superficial rom-com, you know, at the end of the day, like Jerry Maguire has to complete himself. Um, and, um, and I think that that is absolutely essential to any relationship. And we can help each other get there sometimes. Um, I certainly didn't walk into my relationship complete. Um, but now I'm feeling a greater sense of completion. And that allows me to sort of reframe love as something taken to something given, mm-hmm. um, which is just a way lovelier place to be, you know, like, um, and if you practice it, um, it almost becomes part of your reflexive behavior, which is what I, when I have the wherewithal to sort of rise above my personhood and witness myself in a place of compassion, you know, I'm like, shit, I've really come somewhere, <laughs> you know, over the course of my life. Um, so, so you talk about a lot of, um, you know, obviously with Srimu, which I, I and, and with the podcast, and I, I'm sure you guys share a lot of relationship around sort of veganism, and that's probably something creative that you guys are into. And I know that you've written some books together. So I think you, you've done a articulate job of sort of defining how you're kind of empowered in your parallel universes to thrive. But I'm curious how you navigate the choppy waters of actually creatively working together. <laughs> how does that work out? Because <laughs> I've, I've had to navigate those waters myself. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, I don't know. I mean, it's a, pr- it's a process like, you know, we are very different and we have different, um, <laughs> approaches to how we do our work like if you look at my desk and you look at julie's desk that's all you need to know i don't have like, a desk first of all yeah she but like you know I'm, there's just I have her, a meditation her workspace is like in the bed or there's like tons of stuff in disarray and she seems to be you know task switching and you know i need everything meticulous and i'm a you know i need to like go in deep on one thing and and 
remove all distractions and then slowly move to the next thing. Um, I'm very detail oriented. I'm a control freak. Julie's a more expansive thinker. She's a better leader in terms of, uh, you know, getting, um, you know, getting other people, soliciting, you know, help from others and creating a team environment. Whereas I'm a very, you know, very solo kind of worker. So our styles and our approaches are very different. So, you know, we had to figure out a language in order to be able to work together productively. And that, you know, that's had its peaks and valleys. You know. That language is like yeah. some fighting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we yeah. clash. Language of you know? fuck you. And I, I mean, I think, so it's not like, you know, we're not going to say like, oh, it's great. And like, we get together and it's seamless. Like we have to butt heads and, you know, through, we can, you know, we can, you know, compress that coal into, into a diamond, but you know, there's, 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 there's some pain along, along the way, I would say. And I, I think the real, the takeaway or the lesson is, I mean, we've gotten better at it. And we've also, we're more like in our own little paths right now. So we're not coming together as much. We should find something to do together though, mm -hmm. because there is something special about that. But I think Children. the lesson <laughs> really is, is that, is that if there's one thing that Julie and I are really good at, it's communication. Like we don't yeah. hide our emotions from each other. We're not passive aggressive with each other. Um, and we fight and we get into it yeah. once in a while. And I think any couple that's been together for a while who tells you they don't fight, I mean, I either they're lying or they're avoiding, you know, confrontation over their emotions because right. being in an intimate relationship, you're going to have clashes. So how are you going to navigate that? So, you know, we get into it with each other um, and we lay it all out, but we have a couple rules, which is, you know, nobody walks away until we've kind of gotten to the other side of this. No one walks away, away angry. Like I'm done with this, you know, when you're in the middle mm. of it. Mm. Um, so we work through it until we've gotten to the other side of it. And then neither of us, you know, kind of hold a grudge. Like the half-life of these things is, is pretty short. And yeah, you know, I, I think, find, yeah, I find that to be absolutely key, you know, just the, just no grudges, you know, this is like, there is a, like you say, we're always moving to sort of align our work and action with our highest principles. I think when you talked a little bit about Christ consciousness of like, you know, trying to live up here. And this is a process that we are always dedicating ourselves to. And I think when we're holding ourselves in grudge or in low vibration, it's just, you know, there is no upside to that. There's no profitability to that, to that behavior. Um, but I oh, think I wanted just to add one thing if I could. Yeah, please. Um, I think the, the truth of relationships, um, especially long ones, like we're all in. Well, the only thing you can count on in life is that it's going to change. Right. Everything's changing and moving. And so it's your ability to adapt. It's your ability to, um, yeah, to adapt and to go along the journey. It's like Rich and I have this joke when we first got together, we were like, let's not ever go to Home Depot together ever. Like ever, not once, <laughs> never on the weekend and never, ever, we're not doing that. And we, you know, first of all, we have all kinds of stuff broken in our house. Nobody's handy. We're all a bunch of artists. Like we're all just dreaming that a handy person will come and live on our land and <laughs> fix shit. But we never go like we just, that's not why we're together. We're not together to 
fall into some routine where it's like, I always drink out of this cup or I always sit in this chair. It's like, we're here for evolution. We're makers. We're both generators. We came here to express and grow and change. And one of the, one of the things I remember telling Rich is if I'm not evolving every seven years, I don't want to be alive. So I didn't come here to be in a life to be one flavor. And, you know, now it's like when at first, when I was rich, I had brown hair. Now I let my hair grow out. So I have silver hair. And it's like, I got to be, you know, we're moving and changing and evolving. And so the relationship, and I think at this moment, when we're talking about the heart chakra, so obviously, you know, the heart chakra could be um, representative of the Aquarian age of this new age that we've just stepped into. And I mean, this is a real thing. It's not some, you know, new agey idea that some yoga teacher had, like, we are in a different moment of life and you can see the evolution happening in our structures, our systems, our sexuality. And for me as a love couple or as a fourth chakra, uh, beloved relationship, I think this sexual energy, which is the same thing as creativity, which is the same thing as spirituality is on the deck for some evolution. Um, you know, our sexuality has been uh, founded in, you know, uh, uh, seduction, pornography, uh, objectification, you know, really of, of, of women mostly. Uh, but also, you know, I, I do multidimensional healing sessions and probably 90% of my clients have suffered sexual abuse as children. So it, it's staggering staggering where, where it really is permeated in our culture. And so here we are at the fourth dimension at the heart chakra in these longer relationships or maybe in new relationships. And it's like, there is an opportunity for evolution of us understanding that sexual energy is the most important, most powerful, you know, tool that we have. And it always made me laugh that 99.9% of the population is just hoping to have an orgasm. Like that's it for them. <laughs> you know, and, and if you even look at how people get together and it's like, you know, humping like dogs. Okay. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm envisioning a world where like we merge our energy, you know, together like light beings and it's this gorgeous thing. You know what I mean? So I think we're at that moment with romantic relationships and obviously they're coming in many different shapes and sizes. Uh, but for me, that's what human shift in the fourth chakra is really speaking to. Hmm. Beautiful. I, I've heard you guys talk very humorously about, um, you know, uh, about kind of like, superficially imposed dates of, of significance. And this resonates with me and my family so much because my kids and I always take a bet every year on whether or not Skylar, my wife, will remember our anniversary or not. And how many, like how many hours in the day it will take her to remember. And often she just doesn't remember at all. And it's, uh, and I've heard you guys talk about things in a similar funny way. Um, and I suppose tomorrow is Valentine's Day and I, I, I don't peg you for a, a, a roses and chocolates kind of couple. Um, but I also have heard you talk about something that intrigues me because it's absent in 
in our relationship in my relationship with Skylar a bit. I mean, certainly we have things that we do together and that we enjoy each other with. We're kind of intellectual fencing partners and we go on walks and, you know, we talk about the vaccine or this or that or whatever. We just get into it. But we don't necessarily have spiritual ritual that we engage in together. And I wonder if that, I've heard you guys talk a little bit about that. Is that something that you do together and if so like how do you manifest that or not or, or or you're still going towards that because to be honest like it's very hard for me to find that yeah i mean like there's obviously some sexual energy and that can be a manifestation of something spiritual and ritual but i'm wondering if there's something that is uh something else that that you guys experience together that take you and to another dimension. I mean, one thing that I would say is that Rich and I, by for whatever reason, I can't explain it. I don't. I cannot explain it because I've been in relationships where after a couple years, it's just there's no interest. You know, that seems to be the normal thing. Um, so we've always had a very creative, spontaneous, connected sexual relationship, where which is like I don't know why. You know, I guess because we had this work we needed to do together. So it was like better make that work for them. Um, and what I would tell you is that in area, in times of suffering, that ritual is available to Rich. It's not available to him when things are going very well. <laughs> um, but I live in ritual every breath yeah. of my life. And so if I, if I am engaged in sex, sex with him, I am doing intentions and energy and all these things that he probably doesn't know that I do. And, but this is the <laughs> thing that I've talked about that you can't really talk about tantric sex as being the solution uh, to moving into that more expanded ability to use sexual energy for what it really is unless you have two yogis that are in the relationship. So I just gave you the window of us by the water thing. And that's, that's a reality. So I'd say it's in its evolution. And um, I'm glad you asked the question because it gives me the opportunity to bring it into the space on the altar. I mean, sorry, I sorry Rich. tell you that. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, Julie is the master of ritual, and she she thinks about and practices ritual with a rigor that I've never seen in any other person. And this, you know, can entail waking up at two in the morning or three in the morning. And you know, our master bedroom has slowly, you know, it's it slow. The 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 um. The altar aspect of the master bedroom has has metastasized. So it used to be in the <laughs> and it's growing, you know, it's like in a petri dish. It's like now the whole bedroom is one massive, uh, uh, you know, ritualistic <laughs> space such yeah. that, you know, the journal that she's writing in literally like, you know, is halfway into the shower. So if I take a shower, all her st stuff gets <laughs> <laughs> should put it on like a butcher roll so of parchment point, or something. Yeah. I mean, my point <laughs> being is like, I've never seen anyone take ritual so seriously. And it is true that, um, you know, for me, it's like, I'm more open to those ideas when I'm in pain or trying to work something out. And when things are going mm. good, I, I, I take back 
my self-will. His intellectual to, yeah, uh, like, power. Or to like put it in <laughs> AA terms. Like I, I have, you know, the process of constantly surrendering is something that I forget. And it's, mm. it's not, you know, it's, it's more, uh, it takes more of an effort for me to be in that place of, of, of reminding myself why that's important, whether things are good or bad. Yeah. 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 That's true. That's so true. I mean, even though I'm in Maui, you know, my, I got here and then, you know, I was like, okay, but I'm I'm not going to let my guard down. I'm going to keep my schedule filled up with things to do and all this kind of stuff. And then, um, you might know this guy, Mark Hyman, he's a doctor, functional medicine doctor. So he's my neighbor here. And, and I, I grew up playing competitive tennis and went to college and played tennis and stuff like that. And Mark is a good athlete, but a bit of a jittery tennis player. And he convinced me to play tennis with him. And then I, I almost immediately sprained my ankle pretty badly. Oh no. And so, yeah, like I spent, so I spent the last week, uh, you know, with my foot in a, in a bucket of ice, um, or at least the first three or four days. But I will say that it was like, it totally slowed me down. And like, I was like, okay. And I just surrendered and I started meditating again and started reading and stopped pushing myself. And now I feel like, you know, new synapses forming and, and, you know, but, you know, otherwise I would have probably just, you know, kept on going. So. Right. And you're, you're the wanderlust guy. Like you're the guy that everyone thinks doesn't need those reminders because it's (laughs) it's wrote and part of who you are, but that's not the way the the human is wired. Uh, Yes. So true. I've seen seen in my life, I'm going to write, I'm, I'm, I'm going to write, but I'm going to write one just about my mystic, my mystic life. I have had, Life has kissed me so many times with mm. mystical experiences that have all been the, the fruits of devotion. And, I, and, it, and it's not an instant gratification thing, but you'll see it. Now I'm old enough that I can look back in my life and I can say, ah, that painting that I painted in ceremony is connected to this, is connected to that, is connected to this. And it's literally the most beautiful experience when you allow life you know the cosmic mother that is the source of your life to paint your mandala for you um it will surpass anything your intellectual mind can think of and so it's really just it's because i know it works and it is my devotion that fruited the entire experience of our life right now and that, that allowed me to hold the space for Rich. I mean, look at what he's experienced in his life from being, you know, drunk with a DUI, you know, blowing everything up. I mean, now it's like our agent yesterday is like, Rich, you're my, fav- you're my most famous client, our big time agent in New York, because of the breadth of people that listen to his show. Yeah. And that I, I know I can be down on my knees. I will, I will declare right now. It is all born out of devotion. I could not have known that for him, but I knew that if I supported him as an emanation of consciousness in his perfect life print, that it would be revealed. And that is really, 
it's so cool. Like it's so beautiful, you know, yeah. because it's like rich is like the Coke bottle, you know, totally not cool guy. Like he's so not cool. Like when he was a kid, Coke bottle glasses, beat up, totally uncomfortable. Like this being that he's become has been um, like the gift of his wildest dreams, mm -hmm. really. And even his personality didn't know it. And it, it began within the beginning days, like, like Maka, is that how I say that guy's name? Uh, Christmas, yeah, Maka. Maka, like the, he, he ended up in our living room, like, like eating my food and sitting next to Rich. And the it's Iron like, Iron Man World Champion. Yeah, Iron Man World Champion. And like, Rich was such a, he's a voyeur, you know, Rich is an adore, he adores people from afar, silently. So he adored that guy and just revered that guy. And then that guy was eating at his table. Cut to thousands of people since then. And then the guy who wrote The War of Art. Stephen Pressfield. Steven yeah, I just, had a, uh, I just had this experience last week. You know, reading War of Art and turning pro, Stephen Pressfield's two books about unlocking creativity changed my life. Like it really completely uh, gave me a frame with which to approach writing and creative expression that truly, you know, impacted me in, in a way that, you know, maybe no other books have other than like, you know, the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so Stephen Pressfield is like a personal hero of mine. And he came and did the podcast the other day. And he couldn't have been sweeter and more kind. And, you know, he's written about me on his blog and he loves my book and told me that I was a hero of his. And it just blew my mind that my, my, the arc of my life could have, you know, taken this, you know, trajectory that would land me in this place is truly beyond anything I could have intellectually, you know, imagined. Mm. So, and it is, and she's yeah. right, Julie's right about how that, you know, was allowed to transpire, I think. Yeah, man, that's, that's beautiful. And it makes me kind of remember Wayne Dyer was kind of my first teacher. Um, and I met him one time, he came to speak at Wanderlust. And uh, he said this, this one phrase that I always remember, which is the, angel, the angels you wish to attract into your life will appear when they recognize themselves in you. Oh, mm. so beautiful. Yeah, I know. And clearly, you know, that's what's happening for you right now. And that's a beautiful thing. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Rich and Julie. You can keep abreast of their many endeavors at juliepiot.com and richroll.com. And of course, email me anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com or follow my regular rants on Instagram at Jeff Krasno. That's all from the commune for this week. My name's Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.